Hello, and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. There's a picture I have of me taken several years ago. It's a warm September day. My hair is messy in a I've been swimming in the ocean all summer kind of way. I'm in a faded black summer dress, and you can't see my feet, but they're probably barefoot. There's a wooden shed behind me, a stack of firewood, and in my hands is a beautiful golden bundt cake topped with a sprinkle of icing sugar and wildflowers. It's all staged. It was taken at a photography workshop at Kate Inglis's house on the south shore of Nova Scotia maybe five or six years ago. We were working in pairs, taking portraits of each other, using the props around us. The trees, the brook, the garden, the bamboo forest, the shed, and the food that we would later be eating. I gravitated towards the cake, a sherry cake, Kate told me, a favorite family recipe of her mother's. I've held many cakes in my life. Between my husband and my three boys, that's 72 birthday cakes alone, but I've never looked calm like that before. What mother does when the lights are dim, the candles are lit, and she's holding a cake and all of the anticipation in the air? But here in this photo, with the afternoon sun sparkling in my hair, the goal is not to serve the cake, but to capture an image, to tell that story. Later that afternoon, we put our cameras away, laid old quilts on the grass, and sipped tea and ate the cake. I remember a metal tin filled with espresso shortbread being passed around, so we ate those too. And later that night, after big bowls of chili and soft baguettes, we sat under the fairy lights strung between the branches above and sipped beer and listened to local singer-songwriters performing right there for us in front of the shed. Things are a little different now. Kate is still telling stories, but there's less photography and more writing. She writes fiction and nonfiction for kids and adults, and she helps clients tell their stories through brand strategies. It's the recipes for her cakes that have changed, and the food passed around in her old metal tin isn't the same. And she's not the teacher, she's the student of this new, different life. She's learning a new story with another flavor. So I take about 20 to 25 pills a day that are supplements. So everything from, you know, great big healthy dose of vitamin D, vitamin B, other sort of more peripheral stuff like alpha lipoic acid or um, CoQ10 or some of these other slightly more out there supplements that have particular application to my disease. Um, and it, chia seeds and fish oil and hemp protein and all these things that are like, okay, I'm not swallowing that much gelatin. It's just not necessary. So every morning I make myself a smoothie and I break open all the pills and put the powder inside. And, and it's even simple things like turmeric, which is really great for anti-inflammatory uh, properties. And a little bit of ice, um, half a cup of frozen blueberries, about two thirds of a banana and about a cup of coconut. So non-dairy uh, kefir with no sugar in it, which is really hard to find, but I've found a brand of kefir that doesn't have any added sugar. Uh, ironically, a lot of the kefir that says plain 
isn't plain. It has sugar in it. So, so it took some, some finding, but it's a really great base, like how you would use a yogurt. But I've also found in the same brand has a really terrific vegan coconut yogurt that's plain that I can add a bit of maple syrup to that's really delicious. Um, anyway, so I make that smoothie and I wore it up. Um, and so it's extremely filling. So that's kind of, because I really always want to get those supplements out of the way first thing. Last January, almost a year ago, Kate was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. In one day, one diagnosis, her life changed. From her perception of herself as an active person who would be skiing at 80, to what she could eat for breakfast or any meal for that matter. Her physicians prescribed the appropriate medications for her disease, but she quickly learned that although taking medication is the obvious path, Diet was also a massive autoimmune trigger, and what she ate would have to change. Kate calls what she has an autoimmune disease and leaves it at that. It's not really a secret in my life, but I don't really speak about it publicly because the diagnosis that I got is one of those really scary words. But I think the more important thing that I can talk about is that it's an autoimmune condition that's going to be for the rest of my life. It's a marathon that I didn't sign up for. And I've been shoved up to the starting line. I'm like, what, what? No, 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 no. And what's chasing me all the way down this marathon is if you don't do things properly, you could in six months, 10 years, five years, or 20 years end up in a wheelchair. You could be blind. You could be, you know, this is a really scary thing. I'll get nerdy here just for a minute. And if anyone out there is further along in the path than I am, then forgive my um, possible um, garbled way of talking about it because it's a steep learning curve. But basically, it's like an allergy in the sense that um, we, we are triggered by certain foods. And when that protein enters the blood system, our body creates antibodies to, to attack those proteins. But the problem is when you have an autoimmune disorder, those proteins attach themselves to uh, your, um, there's something in the muscles that turns into fibromyalgia. It might be around the joints, which is arthritis. It could be in the spine and brain, which is multiple sclerosis. So those proteins attach because they're kind of drifting through your blood. And the good guys come in and they're like, ah, we don't, we don't, we don't like you. We, we, we don't want you there. But because of molecular mimicry, I have my own proteins that look like allergens, that look like those allergens that my system wants to fight and, 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 and work up against. And so what happens is those proteins attach inside my body somewhere. If you've got Crohn's or colitis if, or something like that, it's happening in your digestive system. And my immune system is trying to help. So it attacks, let's say, the digestive system or the spinal column or the brain or uh, the joints. And this is where the autoimmune flares happen and the disease progresses. So medical science looks at that and says, okay, let's look at what pills we can take to tell your immune system to stop it, calm down, which of course, the moment you dampen your immune system, you're in danger of dying of bad lettuce. <laughs> you know, you, your immune system is trying to do the job that it's supposed to do. Whereas a naturopath or someone who is looking at a, in a more holistic way at autoimmune disorders is going to look at that and say, 
okay, like medication is, is a path for sure. However, if you're continuing to shovel bagels into your pie hole, if you're still thinking of your pie hole as a hole for pie, you are just continuing to embattle your digestive system and you're triggering, 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 triggering. And so essentially by day two, uh, just based on the loose information that I had about my disease in particular, I was like, all right, well, that's the end for me of gluten, dairy, eggs, red meat, seed oils, sugar, alcohol, caffeine, corn. Uh, yeah, and you're like, you're doing this in horror. And then a couple months after that, um, I did a very, very comprehensive blood test so that we knew exactly what my triggers were for me so that it wasn't guesswork. And grains were then added to the gigantic list, which means no rice, no oats, and, and already like no almonds, no peanuts. I'm one of those people. And this from a person who on weekend mornings loved to poach eggs and... Jump, like do a, a swan dive into a vat of hollandaise. So what now? Make a smoothie. One packed with anti-inflammatory superfoods and supplements with a splash of maple syrup to sweeten the deal. Kate is a creative force. She loves a good party where everyone is dressed in fines from Frenchies, the beloved thrift shop chain here in the Maritimes. She and her husband host Halloween parties with disco balls and dancing. And in the summer, they've hung thrifted king-size sheets between the trees in their backyard, built bonfires, filled tables with food and drink, and hosted film fests in the smoky air under the stars. Because to me, an experience, creativity is so fun when it's tactile and so fun when it's shared. Because what I do for a living as a writer is not tactile and is entirely, almost entirely a solo gulag. You know, you, you're locking yourself in a closet and nobody sees you for three years because you're working on a novel or doing whatever you're doing. And you're lucky if anyone gets to partake in that story, if it gets picked up. But it may not. And so everything is speculative. Nothing is guaranteed. And it's lonely to be creative in that way. We don't get, I mean, bless them through COVID, but we don't get the feedback that, say, musicians get um, because they get to see people sweating and stamping and shouting and singing along every time they perform. They get to see those smiles. And reading is as solitary of an activity as writing is. And so writers generally, except those rare moments when they get to perform their writing, uh, we don't get to experience that. And so there's a part of my creativity that doesn't get exercised enough for my liking. And so that comes through with parties and experiences and food and because I can share that because that's when I get that sort of feedback loop. And when I say feedback loop, I don't mean I get people telling me that that's the best pizza they've ever had. It's not that at all. It's not, you know, cooking vanity. It's the kind of feedback loop where you are together with people and everyone is, everyone is creating this moment together, not just the cook, not just the kitchen, but everyone who contributes their energy to that moment, whether they are joining as a guest or whether they're hosting, is participating. And so when you're participating together, it's an alchemy that I don't get to play with in my writing life, except in really extraordinary circumstances like 
doing a reading in front of an audience, but even then it's not the same. So, um, yeah, so it, it's always felt really important to me and it, it honors different, uh, different influences in my life. Like my grandmother, who was an absolute champion thrifter and very much, uh, my other grandmother who was incredibly elegant and, and always extremely well turned out and makes me feel like we've, We've lost a lot in our modern world when it comes to aesthetics and what matters and craftsmanship and dancing and all of those things. Um, and my mom, who insisted that mayonnaise isn't mayonnaise unless it's been in her blender first, you know. So, so all of that kind of comes together in, in celebrating with friends. And so when you go through something in your life that reframes all of your boundaries that you had assumed would always be your boundaries, aka I don't like parsnips unless they've been very, very well roasted, or B, you know, I love salmon, um, especially when it's got that crust on it. Um, when all of those boundaries have been ripped out from under you and you're given new boundaries that you didn't get to choose, something like what is a birthday? completely shifts. What is Thanksgiving? What is Christmas? Um, how do I participate? How do I share in those experiences in a way that accommodates what I have to do now, but that still feels participatory? Like I'm not sort of isolating or othering myself by removing myself from the core, from the crown, which is food. That's the question, how to shift into a new version of yourself when a certain flavor of celebration is your brand. The grieving process was hard. All of her mother's recipes, her pastry, her mayonnaise, and that sherry cake, and the food she discovered from the places she's visited, and the people she's known, and the moments filled with smoky air. Kate says it felt like the universe had taken a huge arm and swooped it across her table, leaving her with only a sliver. Then there were the trips to the grocery store. For six months, she'd end up crying in the aisles as she read the ingredient lists. Surely, surely, surely I can... <gasps> no. Friggin' seed oils, friggin' gluten, friggin' sugar, and every... Red sugar, alcohol, caffeine, corn... And now, once you're through that, you go, okay, so what do I have? I have honey. I have maple syrup, coconut sugar, coconut flour, so cassava flour. Um, and, okay, and I have vegetables, except the starchy ones, like potatoes. And I have most meats and most seafoods. And I can have very dark chocolate as long as it's sweetened with coconut sugar. And it's like, okay. And then you spend a few months rebuilding and restocking your pantry and getting used to the way things feel. Because when you realize that you've spent your whole life, let's say, sensitive to dairy, but you didn't know because you thought that was normal for everyone and it wasn't the way that the digestion felt or whatever, um, once you do that, once you make that change, 
you get like a week into it and your body is just like, <sighs> and you're like, oh crap, they really are right. All those jerks. They're freaking right. And it doesn't mean it's right for everyone. But when you have that sensitivity or when you are now facing this thing and, and now you can understand why, okay. And then you start clocking some of the rewards. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to my next MRI, which is in January, because that's going to chart one year since January 5th of last year, um, of, of this current year, I guess, um, of just only removing all those triggers and eating so friggin' clean. That I'm like, I'm going to live forever now. I'm going to be cranky forever. Um, no, but I, but I, I love it. And now I was even I was saying to my husband, I feel like if I, if I got that fantasy phone call where my neurologist was like, whoops, we mixed up your MRI results. You're fine. That sucker over there has lesions all over the place and is messed up and they're going to maybe end up in a wheelchair. Not you. You can ski till you're 80, just like you planned. And and I feel like even if I got that silly phone call that I fantasized about for, I'll admit, maybe only about five minutes, um, I thought, you know, I think I would still eat this way because I'm through the fire now. I'm on the other side of it and I feel bloody fantastic. Some things are still tricky to navigate, but when people come to my house for a dinner party, they're eating my food. They're not eating their food and they don't even know it. Kate refers to this struggle as pushing through the fire, a necessary burning, sloughing, suffering, struggle, healing, then regrowth and renew. And when you push through, you'll find a world of people out there who have also made it through the fire, waiting to help on the other side with recipes and support and normalizing conversations. But it's just knowing that other people are out there too. And they are also on the other side of their fire. And their head has gone like, whoa, I'm okay. And I feel friggin' fantastic. And I feel empowered to meet my doctor 80% of the way there. I feel strong. I feel fit. I feel energized. And when I don't, I know why. I know what I can tweak and what my levers are. And it's very, very empowering thing. So, so I have to do a lot of um, invention, but uh, so, but the thing is with a change like this in life, which we're all going to face in one form or another, your stakes either have to go really high or your tolerance for how your life is going right now has to go really low. So when one of those things shoots up high enough or down low enough, you're like, okay, this can't be impossible anymore because what choice do I have? I can either go down that road into the wheelchair or I can reframe my idea of what food is. And that's what I had to do. Kate loves to telemark ski, where toes are in the bindings but heels are loose, and the rear foot keeps balance while the front foot creates a carving turn. She also loves to fly through the woods on mountain bike paths. She says her mind rarely stops spinning. It catastrophizes, her imagination overactivates, and the what-ifs start to spin. 
But when she's flying down a path or slipping over the snow, her brain is shifted to the background and she slips into her body. That's when she begins to float. I tend to catastrophize while I'm skiing. Like last January, the same month Kate was diagnosed, snow had fallen all night, a powder day, our ski instructor said, something we Nova Scotians almost never get. I was nervous. I can carve through ice like I've grown up doing, but I'm lost in fluffy powder. But as it is when caviar comes out or an aged smoky whiskey, I'm supposed to be excited. So I follow the group through the trees, blindly pushing through what feels like freshly sifted icing sugar. There's nothing to push against, nothing firm beneath my skis. We spill out onto an untouched trail, its surface smooth as marshmallow. The women in my group were giddy. One takes off, pulling her skis together until there's just one plank beneath her and floats down. The rest follow and I wobble, trying to control the situation. But I can't push against the icing sugar. Honestly, Lindsay, says our instructor, don't waste the snow. Just relax, commit with your body, and go for it. We don't get to float through life very often. So I soften my eyes, forgot my old injuries and insecurities, sat back a little, and let myself go. It's finding that balance between safety and fear, between finding health and staying joyful, standing on your skis not too far forward and not too far back. That's, that's life. It's a balance of light and dark. It's a, it's a balance of flavor and texture. And that's why I love Japanese food so much. And, and it's a, that's, a, that's going to be a tricky one from now on, not being able to have rice. But... Um, I always loved having sort of the a bento. I, I would love to have a bento approach to my my wellness, you know, because you've got your little cool, crispy salad over here with all the ginger on it. And then you've got your sort of chewy uh, sushi over here with this sort of slippery, lovely raw fish. And then you've got your tempura in the middle, which is crispy and hot and sort of fresh and still kind of sizzling and you've got all the sauces and some are thick and gooey and some of them are thin and sweet and and you put that all together and it's just my mouth is so happy just doing a little of this and a little of that a little of that and and i think what i'm trying to do now is a bento approach to being strong and healthy as i enter you know i'm the same as you i'm 49 we were in high school together so i think about the next part of my life and i think i want to make sure that I'm taking a bento um, path to my sleep and my stress and my mindfulness and my spirituality and my food, uh, my exercise and, 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 and fresh air, which to me are two different things, two different things. Uh, the vitamin D we get from the sun and the invigoration and rosy cheeks we get from being in nature is not the same thing as, you know, clunking it at the gym, you know, <laughs> two, two totally different streams that are both equally important. And really for me, it's just, I happen to get smashed into by this diagnosis that 
pushed me to say, it's bento time, bitch. <laughs> like, figure this out and do it right now or else you are not going to be an 80-year-old skier. You're going you're, you're gonna to be unhappy. So figure this shit out. And so it's, you know, I'm kind of dialing in each little compartment of the bento one at a time. And food was the biggest by far. And now I'm adding the sauces. The metaphorical sauces are sleep, inspired by the teachings of Andrew Huberman and the Winhoff method, where breath, together with cold water immersion and commitment, can heal our bodies like nothing else. It's easier said than done. We're gearing up for winter here in Nova Scotia. Kate lives on the South Shore, where the beaches are sandy and the surfing is great. And in the winter, the temperature of the Atlantic Ocean sways between 3 and 7 degrees Celsius. It's cold, but lately Kate's been wading in, dipping down, and hanging out in the waves for one, two, maybe three minutes. Sometimes she finds a gushing river where there's a pool deep enough to cover her body. She crawls in in her bathing suit, sometimes in a wool hat. The air is icy, but she does it. The cold water hits with a rush of norepinephrine, soothing the most anxious of minds. Meanwhile, the cold is constricting her blood vessels, reducing swelling and inflammation in the body. Immunity is strengthened, and there's more. Steve and Dave Flynn are twin brothers living on the east coast of Ireland. Their mission is to encourage people to live healthier, happier lives by eating as many plants as possible. They have a cafe, a podcast, and cookbooks, and they call themselves the happy pair. Every morning at sunrise, which right now is 7.40 a.m. in Ireland, they gather on the beach in their town of Greystones with anyone who would like to join them, and together they charge into the surf. I think it was Dave who once said that he often doesn't like the guy who's going into the water, but he always loves the guy who's coming out. Cold water changes you. The air smells like winter. The wind is howling. Stripping down to your skin and going into the ocean when you left home with the wood stove burning is against every instinct. This is not leisure. It's treatment. The faster you get up to your shoulders, the more chance you'll break two minutes, maybe three, to the point where you'll feel the tingle of it for days. When you do, you'll notice something interesting. Out here, your brain, an electrical panel, blows all its fuses. Out here, there are no worries, fears, lists. As the shock seeps to your bones, sink deeper until breathing in and breathing out is all there is. Within a few seconds, something shifts. The cold feels less like insanity and more like medicine. Circulation, immunity, fortitude. You're somehow calmer and more energized. After, in the bath or by the fire, you are different. Entering the ocean when the air smells like winter makes you a little bit stronger. You can freeze the churn of your mind. You are in command of your body. They say you start to crave the cold.
Kate is making a mixing bowl sized salad for dinner with roasted cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and toasted pistachios and a turmeric lemony dressing. She loves the crunch, 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 she says. And maybe she'll put some scallops on top or chicken or pork that she's been marinating. It all sounds quite lovely. Kate Inglis, thank you for sharing your life with us. Anyone want to join me on a cold water plunge challenge? I could use a jolt of norepinephrine right now, and I always love myself more after a bracing swim. Let's do it. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song is Jen Grant's One More Night. Please rate and review The Food Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Wilson.